The binding of Satan is therefore in reality not for a season, but with reference to a sphere, and his losing again is not after a period, but in another sphere. It is not subsequence, but exteriority that is suggested. There is indeed no literal binding of Satan to be thought of at all. What happens, happens not to Satan, but to the saints, and is only represented as happening to Satan for the purpose of the symbolical picture. What actually happens is that the saints described are removed from the sphere of Satan's assaults. The saints described are free from all access of Satan. He is bound with respect to them. Outside of their charmed circle, his horrid work goes on. This is indicated indeed in the very employment of the two symbols, a thousand years and a little time. A thousand years is the symbol of heavenly completeness and blessing, the little time of earthly turmoil and evil. Those in the thousand years are safe from Satan's assaults. Those outside the thousand years are still enduring his attacks. And therefore he, though with respect to those in the thousand years bound, is not destroyed. And the vision accordingly requires to close with an account of his complete destruction. And of course this also must needs be presented in the narrative form of a release of Satan, the gathering of his hosts, and their destruction from above. A quote from the article, The Millennium and the Apocalypse, reprinted in Biblical Doctrines, pages 649 through 651. While we are not able to agree fully with this view, we do believe that the views of such a distinguished theologian must be given consideration in any comprehensive treatment of this subject. And we agree that Revelation 20 verses 1 through 10 affords no real basis for believing that there is to be a final apostasy in the sense that a large proportion of the earth's inhabitants turn against God or that the safety of the saints is seriously threatened. We have said that we believe there is to be a final public manifestation of evil on the part of those who have never been righteous and for the purpose of showing what a dreadful thing sin is and how deserving it is of punishment. But we do not believe that it results in the loss of so much as one of the saints. Furthermore, after we have been shown in Revelation 19 verses 11 through 21 how complete is Christ's victory and how thoroughly crushed are all his foes, we cannot believe that at the end God as the sovereign ruler of the world, he of whom the scriptures say, the king's heart is in the hand of Jehovah, as the watercourses, he turneth it whithersoever he will, Proverbs 21 verse 1, and he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? Daniel 4 verse 35 will suddenly and purposefully throw away that victory and permit the devil a worldwide triumph even for the briefest time. Once the hard-fought battle is over and such a magnificent victory won, we may be sure that it will be properly safeguarded and that the devil will never again be allowed to rise as a serious contender against God. And this, we believe, is the consistent teaching of Scripture. Perhaps the most definite statement regarding the permanence of Messiah's kingdom is found in Daniel's interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, where after indicating the successive world kingdoms that were to arise, Daniel said, And in the days of those kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. 
nor shall the sovereignty thereof be left to another people. But it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Chapter 2, verse 44 Ezekiel pictures the ever-increasing blessings of Messiah's reign as a flow of healing waters that issue from under the threshold of the temple, first on the ankle deep, then to the knees, then to the loins, then a great river that could not be passed through. Chapter 47, verses 1 through 5. Zechariah says of the Messianic kingdom that his dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Chapter 9, verse 10. The kingdom prophecies in Isaiah and Micah teach a complete victory with never a reference to a final apostasy. Speaking through the psalmist, God said, Ask of me, and I will give thee the nations for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Chapter 2, verse 8. The New Testament presents the same teaching. The healing stream pictured by Ezekiel finds fulfillment in the life-giving ministry of the Christian church. The kingdom of heaven is said to be like unto leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened. Matthew 13:33. The residue of men and all the Gentiles are to seek after the Lord. Acts 15:17. Christ is to sit at the right hand of the Father until all his enemies have been placed under his feet. Acts 2.35 And there is no reason to believe that those enemies, having once been conquered, will ever again be permitted to rise up and renew the battle. A striking contrast between the millennium in which the postmillennialist believes and that in which the premillennialist believes is seen in the degree to which evil will be allowed to assert itself during that time and at its close. The postmillennialist believes that as the millennium becomes reality, evil will be reduced to a minimum. But the premillennialist believes that while Satan is to be bound so that he can no longer deceive the nations, those nations nevertheless continue at heart enemies, ready to turn to Satan and to follow his leadership in a war against the saints the moment the thousand years are finished. According to the premillennial view, evil is effectively held in check during the millennium only by the rod of iron rule of Christ. Premillennialists who are accustomed to think of the millennial age as an age of righteousness and peace may be surprised to know what three of their representative men who have been so influential in bringing the system to its present form, dispensationalism, had to say on this subject. John N. Darby whose influence at the beginning of the movement was so formative, says, Now there are a faithful few, Satan being the prince and god of this world, going against the stream. Then Christ will be the prince of the world and Satan bound, and the obedience will be paid to Christ's manifested power even when men are not converted. When this obedience is not paid, excision takes place so that all is happy and peaceful. It is a perfect government of the earth made good everywhere. When Satan is let loose and temptations come again, those not kept by grace follow him. I have an impression that piety will decline in the millennium, but it is founded on a figure so that I do not insist on it. But the rest of what I have said is revealed. That men should fall when tempted, however sad, is nothing but what is very simple. It is the last effort of Satan. 
from the Collective Writings, Chapter 11, page 534. James H. Brooks, in his Maranatha, presents an even darker picture. He says, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and though restrained during the millennium, it will manifest its inherent depravity at the first favorable opportunity, like a tiger long caged and curbed that will bound back to its native jungle with unquenchable thirst for blood when the iron bars are removed. Page 540, the fifth edition. 1878 and Dr. G. Campbell Morgan says we have seen that the golden age is to be characterized by the direct government of Christ sin will still be in the earth but it will be held in repression and summarily punished as soon as manifested the nations which Christ will rule with a rod of iron will be to a large extent disloyal in heart so that when Satan is loosed for a little season, he will straightway deceive them. True, there will be everywhere those who refuse enlistment under his banners, but the picture here is that of an enormous apostasy, the most fearful ever seen. There is no doubt that to some who have dreamed of the millennium as a finality, the outlook afterward is disappointing. But ere the kingdom of Jesus Christ in all its glory can be ushered in, the unbelief and disloyalty which lurks in the hearts of men must be brought to a final head. All the nations will be under the government of the rod of iron and will be compelled to submit therefore. In heart, however, the great mass will be rebellious to the end and will eagerly avail themselves of the opportunity of outwardly throwing off the yoke and entering upon actual conflict when it presents itself in the loosing of Satan. A quote from God's Methods with Man, page 132 and 183. Commenting on this view, Dr. Alice observes that it is not an attractive one, and then says, It is not pleasing to think of the Messianic King, the Prince of Peace, sitting enthroned, as it were, on a smoldering volcano, of a reign of Messiah, peaceful on the surface, but seething with hate and muttered rebellion of people yielding outward obedience because excision is the inevitable consequence of disobedience and opposition, since the rod of iron rule can only mean the dashing in pieces of the rebellious, like a potter's vessel. When we read that the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, we do not take this to mean that the wolf will be as eager as ever to devour the lamb and be restrained from doing so only by fear of the consequences. We naturally understand it to imply a change of nature. The ravening beast, whether the words be taken literally or figuratively, will no longer desire to devour the lamb. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all God's holy mountain, for the reason that they will not want to, not because they will be restrained by force from doing what they will want to do. He adds further that according to this view, the enemies of Messiah will make a show of obedience to a rule which they hate. So we may say that according to this view, the millennium will surpass all others as the age of hypocrisy and hypocrites. Men, many men will submit only because they must, and these tiger men will be waiting with ever-growing impatience for the moment when defiance and resistance may offer at least the semblance of a successful issue. A quote from Prophecy and the Church, page 241. What a millennium the premillennialist has! 
a thousand years of Jewish supremacy with Jerusalem as the capital, semi-heavenly and semi-earthly, saints in glorified resurrection bodies mingling with sinners in the flesh, a mixed state of mortals and immortals, and all of this climaxed by an unprecedented manifestation of evil at its close. Human life and the work of the world will go on during all that long period very much as now. Men and women will marry and children will be born. People with mortal bodies will live in houses and eat physical food and be subject to sickness and death, although not to the same degree as at present. Conditions will be ideal but not heavenly. The earth will be abundantly fruitful. Multitudes will honor and worship God, while other multitudes will be sullen and resentful. Wicked men will be held in check by the rule of force. To a considerable extent, Old Testament conditions will be reestablished. The middle wall of partition between Jew and Gentile, which Christ has broken down, that he might create in himself of the two one new man, so making peace, Ephesians 2 verses 14 and 15, is to be built up again and made higher and stronger, and the Jews reestablished as the chosen people. Such a kingdom must of necessity be far inferior in glory to the final kingdom. Premillennialists insist that the latter part of Ezekiel, chapters 38 to 48, is to be taken with great literalness as having fulfillment in the millennial kingdom and as foretelling a restored Israel in the land of Palestine. Thus the temple is to be rebuilt, animal sacrifices are again to be presented to make atonement for the sins of the people, chapter 48 verse 15 through chapter 46 verse 15. The priests will officiate, chapter 46 verse 2, the people of the earth will go up to Jerusalem for the appointed feasts, chapter 46 verse 9, and Christ personally present and visible only to a comparatively small number of people will enter the temple by the eastern gate as the priests prepare his burnt offerings and peace offerings, chapter 46 verses 2 and 3. Notice that if these chapters are to be taken literally, they do not say, as premillennialists attempt to make them say, that the sacrifices will be only memorial in nature, but that they definitely are called sin offerings, burnt offerings, and meal offerings. Chapter 45, verses 22 and 25. A literalist has no right to give them any other meaning. We prefer to say that these predictions were fulfilled in part when Israel was restored to Palestine at the time of Ezra and Nehemiah and later, and that as regards any parts that did not find fulfillment at that time, Old Testament thought forms are employed to teach New Testament spiritual truths, truths which in that day could be expressed intelligently only through those forms with which the people were familiar. Frankly, we have no desire for such a state as premillennialism sets forth, but prefer at death to enter directly into the heavenly kingdom. Surely it must be evident to anyone that such a state, though for the saints it may be marked by holiness of life, nevertheless leaves much to be desired, and that such a lesser state of things prolonged for a thousand years becomes not an increase but a decrease of blessedness restraining rather than promoting the coming of the kingdom of God in its fullness. There is in fact nothing to justify the prolongation of such a futile interval. For the departed saints, who have been reigning with Christ, a return to earthly life and earthly conditions would be literally and figuratively a great come-down, a serious restriction of the glorious life that they now enjoy.
The premillennialist makes no adequate allowance for the far superior and radically different type of life enjoyed by the saints in paradise and that to which they would be subjected if brought back to this earth. And as far as those who still are in the flesh are concerned, surely the Lord's physical presence, visible but to a comparatively small number of his people, would mean less than his spiritual presence now experienced by all his people in all parts of the world, unless we are to cease walking by faith and begin walking by sight. Again we say, what a millennium the premillennialist has, a millennium preceded by seven years of unparalleled confusion and suffering and persecution during the Great Tribulation and under the reign of Antichrist, and ending with a universal revolt and war against which the saints and even Christ himself seem to be helpless and from which they are rescued only by fire from heaven. We cannot refrain from asking, does Christ desert his people at the end of the glorious millennial reign that they should be shut up in Jerusalem and practically at the mercy of the enemy? Surely that cannot be. How is that strange turn of events to be explained? We must ask further, why, if such an important earthly interval lies ahead, why did not Christ and the apostles clearly predict that the temple would be rebuilt, the Levitical sacrifices and rituals reestablished, the Aaronic priesthood restored, the Jews again appointed to be a separate and especially favored people, and Jerusalem again made the center of the world's worship in a thousand-year Jewish kingdom? There can be but one answer. Such a scheme formed no part of their belief. Far from localizing worship in a temple in Jerusalem, Jesus said, The hour cometh when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem shall ye worship the Father. The hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such doth the Father seek to be his worshipers. God is the Spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. John 4, verses 21 to 24. Chapter 13, page 82. Principles of Interpretation It is clear that each of the millennial views has been held and at the present time is held by men concerning whose sincerity and loyalty to the evangelical faith there can be no doubt. That believing Christians through the ages, using the same Bible and acknowledging it to be authoritative, have arrived at quite different conclusions appears to be due primarily to different methods of interpretation. Premillennialists place strong emphasis on literal interpretation and pride themselves on taking scripture just as it is written. Post-nonmillennialists, on the other hand, mindful of the fact that much of both the Old and New Testament unquestionably is given in figurative or symbolical language, have no objection on principle against figurative interpretation and readily accept that if the evidence indicates that it is preferable. This causes premillennialists to charge that post-nonmillennialists explain away or reject parts of the Bible. One premillennial writer says, Premillennialists insist that one general rule of interpretation should be applied to all areas of theology and that prophecy does not require spiritualization any more than other aspects of truth. History is history, not allegory. Facts are facts. Prophesied future events are just what they are prophesied. A quote from Dr. John F. Walvard, Bibliotheca Sacra, July-September issue, 1951, page 272. 
Another says, Premillenarians hold to a literal interpretation of all the sacred scriptures, believing that the teachings of Christ and the apostles are to be understood in a literal sense, except in certain places where some other meaning is designated. A quote from Jesse F. Silver, The Lord's Return, page 204. This general principle of interpretation has been expressed as literal wherever possible, H. Bonar, or literal unless absurd, Govet. One does not have to read far in the Bible to discover that not everything can be taken literally. Silver refers to certain places where some other meaning is designated, but he gives no rule by which those certain places are to be recognized. We find no labels in the scripture itself telling us take this literally or take that figuratively. Evidently, the individual reader must use his own judgment backed by as much experience and common sense as he can muster. And that, of course, will vary endlessly from individual to individual. As an example of what he means by literal interpretation, Silver says, Every prophecy pointing to the first advent of Christ was literally fulfilled to the letter in every detail. Page 209 that statement has been made in substance by various other premillennialists, but it simply is not so. The first messianic prophecy in scripture is found in Genesis 3.15, where in pronouncing the curse upon the serpent, God said, He shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Now that prophecy certainly was not fulfilled literally by a man crushing the head of a snake or by a snake biting the heel of a man. Rather, it was fulfilled in a highly figurative sense when Christ gained a complete victory and triumphed over the devil and all his forces of evil at the cross. The last prophecy in the Old Testament is found in Malachi 4 verse 5 and reads as follows, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and terrible day of Jehovah come. That prophecy likewise was not fulfilled literally. Christ himself said that it was fulfilled in the person of John the Baptist, Matthew 11:14, who came in the spirit and power of Elijah. Again we have the prophecy of Isaiah, the voice of one that crieth, Prepare ye in the wilderness the way of Jehovah, make level in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the uneven shall be made level and the rough places a plain, and the glory of Jehovah shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of Jehovah hath spoken it. Isaiah 40 verses 3 through 5 This certainly was not fulfilled by a highway building program in Palestine, but rather in the work of John the Baptist, who prepared the way for the public ministry of Jesus. John himself said, For this is he that was spoken of through Isaiah the prophet, saying, and then proceeded to quote these verses. Matthew 3, verses 1 through 3, and Luke 3, verses 3 through 6. The words of Isaiah 9, verses 1 and 2, regarding the people of Zebulun and Naphtali, The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined, are fulfilled figuratively in the ministry of Jesus. For Matthew says, now when he heard that John was delivered up, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the border of Nebulun and Naphtali, 
that it might be fulfilled which was spoken through the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, toward the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people that sat in darkness saw a great light, and to them that sat in the region and shadow of death, to them did light spring up. Matthew 4, verses 15 and 16. In these words, Isaiah clearly was speaking of the spiritual darkness that exists wherever sin rules, and of the spiritual light that would be brought to those lands when the Messiah came. And when Balaam attempted to pronounce a curse upon the people of Israel, he pronounced instead a blessing and said, There shall come forth a star out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and shall smite through all the corners of Moab, and break down all the sons of Tumult. Numbers chapter 24 verse 17 These words are commonly understood as embodying a messianic prophecy, and as having had their fulfillment in the coming of Christ, who arose like a star out of Israel, and whose kingdom eventually is to embrace the whole world. Many other Old Testament prophecies in figurative language might be cited, but surely these are sufficient to show that it simply is not true that every prophecy pointing to the first advent of Christ was literally fulfilled to the letter in every detail. That a great deal of the Bible is given in figurative or symbolical language, which by no stretch of the imagination can be taken literally, should be apparent to everyone. We spiritualize these statements because we regard this as the only way in which their true meaning can be brought out. To cite only a few further examples, in the midst of a very prosaic historical account of the deliverance of the children of Israel from Egypt, the providential and protective power of God is set forth in these words. Ye have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, and how I bare you on eagles' wings, and brought you unto myself. Exodus 19.4 Palestine is described as a land flowing with milk and honey. Exodus 3 verse 8 Read the 23rd or 91st Psalm, and note the almost continuous use of figurative language. The New Testament follows the same practice. To his disciples Jesus said, Ye are the salt of the earth. Ye are the light of the world. Even so let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Matthew 5 verses 13 through 16 When instituting the Lord's Supper he said, This is my body, this is my blood. Matthew 26 verses 26 and 28 the writer recently heard a Roman Catholic priest argue quite convincingly that these words prove that in the Mass the bread and wine actually are changed into the flesh and blood of Christ. From the standpoint of literalism, it would be impossible to refute that doctrine. Speaking to the elders of the church of Ephesus, Paul said, I know that after my departing, grievous wolves shall enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Acts 20:29. 20, to the Philippians he wrote, Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the concision. Chapter 3, verse 2 And to the Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I that live, but Christ liveth in me. Chapter 2, verse 20 The word blood is used repeatedly in a figurative sense with reference to the suffering and death of Christ through which salvation was purchased on Calvary. For instance, 
in whom we have our redemption through his blood, Ephesians 1.7, the blood of an eternal covenant, Hebrews 13.20, and they washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb, Revelation 7.14, etc. In spiritualizing certain Old Testament prophecies, we are in good company, for the New Testament writers often do the same. In his discourse on the day of Pentecost, Peter spiritualized the rather extended prophecy of Joel, Acts 2, verses 16 through 21. James' discourse at the Jerusalem conference spiritualized the prophecy of Amos, Acts 15, verses 14 through 18. Literally thousands of such figurative and symbolic expressions are found throughout the Bible, usually without explanation. It is assumed that the reader will understand. Furthermore, foot washing is clearly commanded by Jesus, John 13:14, and is commended by Paul, 1 Timothy 5:10. And five times we have the command, salute one another with a holy kiss. Romans 16:16, 16, 16, 1 Corinthians 16:20. 2 Corinthians 13.12, 1 Thessalonians 5.26, and 1 Peter 5.14. Yet only a very few people take these literally. To spiritualize certain prophecies or other statements does not mean that we explain them away. Sometimes their true meaning is to be found only in the unseen spiritual world. Premillennialists often materialize and literalize the prophecies to such an extent that they keep them on an earthly level and miss their true and deeper meaning. This is exactly what the Jews did in their interpretation of Messianic prophecy. They looked for literal fulfillments with an earthly kingdom and a political ruler and the result was that they missed the redemptive element so completely that when the Messiah came they did not recognize him but instead rejected and crucified him. The fearful consequences of literalistic interpretation as it related to the first coming should put us on guard against making the same mistake in regard to the second coming. The general principle of rigid literal interpretation leads to the conclusion that when Christ comes again, he will reestablish the throne of David in the city of Jerusalem and that he will reign in an earthly political kingdom of Jewish supremacy for 1,000 years. According to that view, the Jews are again to possess all of Palestine and the surrounding areas and are to live there. The temple is to be rebuilt and the priesthood, temple ritual, animal sacrifices, feasts and fasts are to be reinstituted. Premillennialists encounter real difficulty, however, and are forced to abandon their literalism when they come to the prophecies which predict that in the new kingdom all the nations of the earth are to go up to Jerusalem every year, and indeed every Sabbath. And it shall come to pass that everyone that is left of all the nations that came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the king, Jehovah of hosts, and to keep the feast of tabernacles. Zechariah 14.16 It shall come to pass that from one new moon to another, and from one Sabbath to another, shall all flesh come to worship before me, saith Jehovah. Isaiah 66.23 And Thus saith the Lord Jehovah, No foreigner, uncircumcised in heart and uncircumcised in flesh, shall enter into my sanctuary of any foreigners that are among the children of Israel. Ezekiel 44 verse 9 It soon becomes evident that such startling literalism goes a great deal further than its advocates are willing or indeed able to carry it. 
Taken literally, these predictions mean that the whole earth is to become one great Israelitish nation and church with but one temple, one form of worship, and one common law. Premillennialists do not want to acknowledge that weekly pilgrimages or universal circumcision is to become the rule during the millennium. Since they cannot go through with the literal interpretation of their own millennial passages, it becomes evident that their principle of literal interpretation is basically wrong. Premillennialists also encounter difficulty with the Messianic and Kingdom prophecies, which involve the restoration of the historical conditions of Israel's national life including her national enemies, not only the great powers of Assyria, Egypt, and Babylon, but the smaller nations of Moab, Ammon, Edom, and Philistia, nations that have long since vanished from history without possibility of recall. Note especially Micah 5, verses 5 and 6, following the prediction that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, verse 2. And this man, Messiah, shall be our peace, when the Assyrian shall come into our land and when he shall tread in our palaces, then shall we raise up against him seven shepherds and eight principal men. And they shall waste the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod in the entrances thereof. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian. Similar references are found relating to Egypt in Joel 3.19 and to Babylon in Revelation 18 verses 1 through 24. In the Messianic prophecy found in Isaiah 11 regarding the relationship of the future kingdom to the smaller surrounding nations we read, And they shall fly down upon the shoulders of the Philistines on the west. Together shall they despoil the children of the east. They shall put forth their hand upon Edom and Moab, and the children of Ammon shall obey them. Verse 14 it would require a miracle of raising from the dead the nations referred to if these verses are to be literally fulfilled. We believe that George B. Fletcher gives the true interpretation when he says, These verses are a prophecy of the conversion of the Gentiles, verse 10, and of the return of the remnant according to the election of grace from among the Jews, that is, their return to God in Christ, verses 11 through 16. This prophecy began to be fulfilled on the day of Pentecost when Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven, were evangelized by the Apostle Peter and returned home to God in Christ, the mighty God. Under a figure of speech, these Hebrew preachers are represented as flying from Jerusalem with eager activity upon Philistia to convert it, as an eagle pounces upon the shoulders of a sheep or other animal its prey. See Acts chapter 8 verses 26 through 40, Philip's preaching to the Ethiopian eunuch, and chapter 9 verses 32 through 43, Peter's mission to Joppa. A quote from the pamphlet, The Millennium, page 30. This one point alone, that the nations referred to have disappeared from the face of the earth and so could play no part in a future restoration of Israel, should be sufficient proof that the literalistic method of interpretation cannot be defended. Rejecting the clearly enunciated scripture principle that the church has been established as the instrument through which Christ makes a spiritual conquest of the world, he is to sit at the right hand of God where he now is, the position of power and influence, until his enemies have been made the footstool of his feet. Mark 12:36 and chapter 16, verse 19, and Hebrews 1.13 
Premillennialism substitutes the view that until he comes again, the world is to grow progressively worse, and that at his coming he is to conquer the world and overthrow his enemies in the most gigantic and spectacular and sudden military conquest of all time. He is pictured as using overwhelming force in this conquest in that he rains fire and brimstone from heaven upon his enemies and thus utterly defeats Antichrist and all his hosts. Premillennialism seriously misunderstands the genius of Old Testament predictive prophecy in that it interprets in a literal, materialistic sense those four views of the Messianic age which can only be understood in a figurative sense. In the following passage, material objects and familiar ideas of the Old Testament era are used to set forth spiritual truth and to describe an era that had not yet dawned and which therefore could be described intelligently only in the thought forms and language with which the people were familiar. And it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of Jehovah's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow into it. And many people shall go and say, Come ye, and let us go to the mountain of Jehovah, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of Jehovah from Jerusalem. Isaiah 2, verses 2 and 3. These words are fulfilled in that the gospel took its course out from Jerusalem as the disciples went under orders to evangelize all the world, with the church over the centuries gradually coming into a position of worldwide prominence, gradually increasing in power and becoming more influential in the lives of men throughout the world until it stands out like a mountain on a plain. The attempt to assign specific meaning to each figure of the landscape not only mars the beauty of the picture, but obscures the real meaning of the prophecy. When God says, They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, let not the reader absurdly imagine that he had in mind only that insignificant elevation called Zion in the southeast corner of the city of Jerusalem. God's holy mountain, which at that time was the site of the temple and the center of the true religion, is the familiar and endeared name for the church, or kingdom in the present messianic age. When we are told that God will create Jerusalem a rejoicing and her people a joy, Isaiah 65:18, Jerusalem, the center of the theocracy and symbol of Old Testament Israel, is used to represent the New Testament church. The writer of the epistle to the Hebrews spiritualizes these passages and shows that their true fulfillment is found in the Christian church when he says of believers, for ye are not come unto a mount that might be touched and that burned with fire, but ye are come unto Mount Zion, unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable hosts of angels, and to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Chapter 12, verses 18 through 23. Having then a great high priest who hath passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Chapter 4:14. And we have such a high priest who sat down on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. Chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. Paul, too, spiritualizes the term Jerusalem when he says that the Jerusalem that is above is free, which is our mother. 
Galatians 4.26. Isaiah says, He shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. 11 verse 4. Similar language is found in Revelation 19 verses 11 through 21, where Christ is pictured as the rider on the white horse, who slays his enemies with a sharp sword that proceeds out of his mouth, that is, by the spoken word, the gospel which is preached by his followers all over the world, and by which he makes a thorough conquest of his enemies. Isaiah says, They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Chapter 2, verse 4 Fulfilled in the gradual elimination of wars as the world is Christianized, and the energies and resources of the people are devoted to peaceful purposes. Again he says, And the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox, and the sucking child shall play on the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of Jehovah, as the waters cover the sea. Chapter 11, verses 6 through 9. That is, forces naturally antagonistic and at enmity with each other shall be gradually subdued and reconciled with each other in a new relationship so that they cooperate harmoniously in Messiah's kingdom. A fitting example of the wolf dwelling with the lion is seen in the change that came over the vicious persecutor Saul of Tarsus, who was a wolf ravening and destroying, but who was so transformed by the gospel of Christ that he became a lamb. After his conversion he lost his hatred for the Christians and became instead their humble friend, confidant and defender. The lion eats straw like the ox when men who formerly were strong and cruel and wild by nature are so changed by the gospel that they become gentle, meek, humble and feed on the word of life along with those who are members of Christ's church. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 731, writes, 
God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.